So again, this morning we have Martine Hybor coming to preach for us. Um, he sent out, I don't know if you, everyone saw in the email, a few different verses to read. Uh, but I was going to just read the shorter, a shorter one um, in case not everybody got a glimpse of it. Plus, I, I just like this, these verses. It's Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Um, and it's just uh, in prep for, for what Martine will be sharing. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So with that, more time. Uh, I can find you some. Thank you. Morning, church family. It's a privilege to be here again with you this morning. And let us, before I read scripture, let us open up with a short prayer to ask the Lord for his blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come to your house this morning to hear your word proclaimed, to hear these incredible truths that you set before us as we already considered from Ephesians and now from our passage, Lord, how all the purposes ultimately end with Jesus Christ, purposes for all things in our lives. Father, we pray if those are struggling in this life or those who face temptations and those who, who may be walking in darkness or whatever it is that we're facing right now, Lord, we pray that you would use this message to strengthen believers, Lord, and that you would also call out those who, who may not have yet bowed the knee for Christ. Please enlighten us with your spirit this morning, Lord, because we wholly depend on you. Give words to speak and open hearts to receive your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you would now please open your Bibles to Romans 8, and I'm just going to read our passage this morning that we will consider, Romans 8, verse 26 to 34. Um, I'll be reading from the King James, but you can read whatever you have, whatever version you have. Romans 8, verse 20, 26 to 34. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, they're called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. 
Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Thus far the reading of God's word. So, I'm sure you've all heard the expression, everything happens for a reason. You may have said it yourself when something goes wrong or not entirely according to plan. And what do we say? Well, everything happens for a reason. The question, however, is this. When you say something like that, what is the hope of knowing that something happens for a reason when you don't know what that reason is? Let alone if that reason or that purpose is even in your favor. Thank you so much. But this passage tells us that everything does happen for a good reason, a good purpose. It's a glorious purpose. What is that purpose? That is what we want to consider this morning. And also, how can you as a believer draw comfort out of this purpose? So our theme this morning is God's ultimate purpose for everything. And we take this from our text, Romans 8, verse 26 to 34. And there's four points. Um, I know they're a bit long points, but we'll be repeating them through the sermon. It is God fulfilling His purpose in our spiritual weakness. God fulfilling His purpose in life's circumstance. God fulfilling His purpose through our election. And God fulfilling His purpose for Christ. And as we consider this text... I would argue that the structure here is, is a classic biblical structure where what is being emphasized is in the middle of the text. And everything that leads up to this climax and everything that flows out of this climax corresponds and relates and complements. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to scale this mountain and we're going to scale it from two, times, uh, from two sides at the same time. And we'll see that as we go through a text. So beginning at our first point, God fulfilling his purpose in our spiritual weakness. And we see in our passage how God is fulfilling his purpose by the Spirit's intercession in the believer in order to sanctify you. If you read with me, and, and I can recommend keeping your Bibles open, in verse 26 it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities or our weaknesses. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So why is Paul bringing up the issue of prayer and our struggles in prayer? Well, just to go a little bit back, if you, I'm sure you're all familiar with the book of Romans, how it starts with the universal problem of sin. And how it follows up with the justification in Jesus Christ. And then it moves on to sanctification. And then you reach this well-known chapter 7 where it speaks of the battle of the flesh against the spirit. And the, the struggle that believers still face in this life in the battle against sin. And how it climaxes in the victory of Jesus Christ. That we have our hope and rest there. 
But then you get into chapter 8, and it continues to speak about a struggle. A struggle of a pilgrimage that looks back to the completed work of Jesus Christ, but it also looks forward to completion and perfection in heaven, to be with Christ. But until then, we still live this life on earth, struggling against the old man that's sort of still attached to us, the sin that indwells us. And because of that, the imperfections and the weaknesses that we get to deal with, our minds are so often in darkness. And we are so often ignorant about the things and the purposes of the things that are around us. And we get confused. And we sometimes even despair. And we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. And and, and sometimes we don't even know how to pray anymore. And it is in this circumstance... Where we, where we uh, reach our passage where Paul says the Holy Spirit nevertheless helps you in your prayer. He is at work in your heart. He is stirring your longings for God. Your longings for Him to please Him. To desire to be with Him. And despite all our weaknesses, because of all our weaknesses, sometimes these longings can be so, so deep that we ourselves cannot express them in words. They can be just sighs and groans. But there's sighs and groans that are stirred by the Holy Spirit. And He, as it were, takes those prayers, those inarticulate prayers, and He lifts them up before the Father, expressing to Him the things that we cannot express ourselves. This is how the Holy Spirit is at work in helping you in prayer. He is sanctifying your prayers because He knows where it comes from. From God. This we read in verse 27. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Children. Who is the one that searches your heart? Who is the one that knows what's in your heart? What you really, really want? Only God knows, right? God searches the hearts. And when he searches the heart of a believer, what he finds there is the Holy Spirit at work. And he is pleased with it. Because the Holy Spirit is taking these prayers, He's sanctifying them, and He's teaching you to pray more and more in accordance with God's will. So that what you pray now is in line with what God wants you to pray. That is how the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. He is using even your own spiritual condition to sanctify you. This is what we read at the very beginning of the passage. But also at the very end of the passage, we see Jesus Christ interceding for the believer to preserve you. This this begins in verse 33, where it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. So Paul is asking a rhetorical question. Who is charging the elect? Who is accusing the elect? If you're a believer, who is accusing you? You might think, well, Satan's accusing me all the time. So does my own conscience. But Paul says, think about it. If God justifies, then what does it matter who is charging you? God is the ultimate authority. 
when he justifies you, what can all these accusers do? The question here is not who accuses you. The question is here, how can God justify me? And this you read in verse 34. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Again, a rhetorical question. Who is he that condemns? Paul asks. Because the one who condemns is the judge, the ultimate judge. Now, who is the ultimate judge? Who will, on the last day of this world, judge all men? It's Jesus. Paul says it's Jesus Christ. But he says that Jesus died for the sins of his people. The judge went to the cross for his, for his own people. And not only did he pay for the sins of his people, Paul is quick to add, he said also, remember, he was raised up from the dead. That means that the Father saw what Jesus Christ had done and he accepted the payment. He said it is finished. You may now come out of the grave. And then he lifted up Jesus into heaven, where Jesus, in his human nature, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And there he is, right now, interceding, praying for you, if you are a believer, every single moment of the day. He is praying for your complete salvation based upon his completed redemption for you. No doubt he is showing the Father his pierced hands and his wounded side, saying, Father, I have done that for such and such a person. Please, Lord, uphold him, that one day I might receive him into my presence. That is how the Lord Jesus is praying for you. So you see in this passage how the Holy Spirit is interceding with you. He's praying with you, helping you to pray. And you see how the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding, is praying for you, that you may be upheld, so that one day you may be in His presence. Do you think about that? All these weaknesses that you have in your spiritual life, when you fail in prayer and your doubt and you're despairing or... Maybe you get upset over something. Know this. If you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. And He's helping you to pray. And He's sanctifying your prayers. And He's stirring your longings for God. Meanwhile, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you in heaven. So all these weaknesses that you have in your heart still, and all the accusations that come against those weaknesses from Satan, from your own conscience, they cannot thwart God's purposes for you. He's even using those very weaknesses to sanctify you. So maybe you say, okay, well, this is all, this is what's happening in my heart. This is my spiritual life. What about everything in this life that influences me from the outside? And that brings us to our second point. God fulfilling his purpose in life's circumstance. And we see in our, per, in our passage, first of all, that it is God's purpose of working all things for the good of all believers. And this we read in this well-known, often memorized, and famous verse 28.
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So Paul opens this verse by saying, we know. And in the original language, that means we know for sure, with an assured knowledge. Of all these things that we are ignorant about, we know this for sure. That what? That all things absolutely all things all things that happen to you all things that you have all things that you don't have and all things that you are what can we all include in this well all the general events that happen around us the kind of stuff that you read about in the newspaper on on, on your social media feed starting in verse 38 Paul gives us a list Death, life, angels, principalities, governments, powers, spirits, Satan, devils, angels, things present, what happens today, things to come, the future, height, depth, or any creature. And you can add to this list and we look around us, right? COVID-19, how has that influenced your life over these last two years? Or when you hear rumors of war in Ukraine and in other places, in Myanmar. When you hear of persecution of Christians. When you hear that the Prime Minister of Japan was shot, or the previous Prime Minister. Political news, economical news. Inflation, things becoming more expensive, your gas prices. These are the things which you read and hear and you wonder, what is the world coming to? Are you still in charge, Lord? What's this all for? But the old things also include the events that affect us very personally, testing our faith even more. In verse 35, we read, Paul speaks of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, hunger, nakedness, peril or sword, war. The things that affect us that when, when they come close to home and when COVID is no longer a news article, but when it, it, it brings you to the brink of death. Or when you get the diagnosis, cancer. Or when you face marital issues, when you face family struggle, struggles, when you lose your job. Those things that affect your faith. And yet Paul says, we know for sure that all things, all these things, work together for good. They work together for good to them that love God. Paul is really highlighting this. If you love God, if you are a God lover, all things work together for your good. Because you are called according to his purpose. Really. All things working together for your good. All things. And that sounds too good to be true, isn't it? How can that be? Because we read in our passage also that all things are included in all the benefits of Christ's atoning work. Now that's a complicated sentence. Let us unpack that. Moving on to verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? These things 
of verse 31. These things, I would argue, refer back to verse 28. The all things. And again, it's a rhetorical question. What shall we say to these things? Everything that happens in our lives, everything that we have, everything that we are. What are we going to do? The trials that we face. Are we going to complain? Are we going to despair? Are we, like good Americans, going to take matters in our own hands? Are we going to try to peek behind the scenes and dive into all sorts of conspiracy theories in order to see what is really happening? What shall we say to these things? Paul says, think about it. I'm not asking you to do any of the other things. He says, if God is for you, who can be against you? And you might add, what can be against you? But that raises another question. How can we know that God is for us? And that you read in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And Paul really is highlighting here that God did not keep back his own son, but gave him up for all his people. He sacrificed his own son for us. That which was most dear and near to him, he gave to us, to you and I, if you are a true believer. Paul says, think about it. If God was willing to do that, then how shall he also not with Jesus Christ, when he gave, he gave Jesus to us, how shall he also not with Jesus give us all things? What does the all things refer to? Not everything that you want. God's not promising here that he's going to give you the nicest car and the biggest house and the best career and, 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 and the nicest spouse, everything that you need, that you think you might need, your flesh desires. He says all things. But the all things, again, refers back to 28. Everything that you have right now. All things. Because notice that it says, God is going to graciously give us all things with him. Everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that happens to you is, as it were, God's gift to you in Jesus Christ. That means that everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that happens to you is necessary, absolutely necessary for your complete salvation. And by salvation, I'm not just talking about the escape from God's wrath. And hell but also your sanctification in this life you need to be and I need to be delivered from ourselves our sinful selves to be sanctified in this life and then to be brought into his presence in glorification that is complete salvation and God is using everything in your life to bring you there it is necessary for your complete salvation. And that also implies that God withholds from you all things that could hinder your salvation. What could that be? Health, wealth, prosperity. You probably know these terms all too well because that is often how this verse 28 is misinterpreted. 
When we think of the good in life as everything that our fleshly desires want, then this verse does not make sense when the negative happens. When God withholds from us health, and we end up sick. Wealth, and we end up in, 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 in poverty. Prosperity. And our lives really don't look that great at all. But if those are the things that would hinder your salvation, and if God instead gives you sickness, poverty, and distress, then this text is telling us that it's still for your good, because it's still for your salvation. Remember, when you read this verse, to look at it from the perspective of your complete salvation. Because if you love God, if you are a God lover, verse 39 says, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. So here we see how God is fulfilling his purposes in your spiritual condition, in your life's condition, in your circumstances. This is what he is doing. Now, how is he using this all for his purpose? And this we will see in our third point. God fulfilling his purpose through our election. And we see in our passage, first and foremost, that it is his purpose to conform us into the image of his son, to make us like Jesus Christ. This we read in the first part of verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Now when it says, for whom he did foreknow, children, I need you to know, when you, when you read of knowing in the Bible, right, it often speaks about a love relationship, an intimate love relationship. So when you read for whom, whom he did foreknow, you can also read that God who chose to love. From eternity past, before the world was created, God chose to love his people. And whom he loved, he also did predestinate. Now, there again is a difficult word. But in that word predestinate, you read the word destination. And God, as it were, took those whom he loved and he said, Your destination is to be with me in glory forever. So God, before he created the world, chose his people, loved them, and predestined them to be with him. But, the text continues, he says, to make them conform, to make them like Jesus Christ. So if God decided to love his people from eternity past, and he decided to predestine them from eternity past, you need to remember this. When God did that, there was nobody there to influence that decision. It was God's decision. It was God's perfectly, absolute, sovereign decision. And therefore, when it says God predestined you to be made like Jesus Christ, that is also a perfectly sovereign decision, meaning it is going to happen. God is going to conform you into the image of his son in order to bring us into his presence. As we read in verse 30, 
Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So Paul here in, in the first part of verse 29 and in verse 30 completes this whole, he, he presents us with this whole plan of redemption. This golden chain as we tend to refer to it. It begins in eternity past with God choosing, with God predestinating. It is realized in time, during your lives, when God calls you into his light and when he justifies you in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then from our perspective, in the future, he's going to complete it. Then he's going to glorify you into his presence, bring you into glorification. But when you read these verbs, notice that they are all in the past tense. Including glorification, which from our perspective is yet to come. How can Paul write that as if it already happened? Them he also already glorified. Because the emphasis here is on what God is doing. And because God is doing it, because these are God's decisions, Paul is writing it in the past tense because he said, this is so sure. This is an established reality. God is going to glorify you. That is so sure that it is an established reality. Therefore, when we look at our own lives, do you ever get tired of yourself? I do. We look at our own lives and we think, how do I fail to be like Jesus Christ? Fall into sin again. Fall into backsliding again. We grow cold. We grow impatient to those around us, even the ones that we love the most. How am I ever going to be made like Jesus Christ? Yet God says, I predestined you to the image of his son it is going to happen it's a given so we see therefore that, that, that's encouraging right when we think of heaven being the place where we all will be perfect in the image of Jesus Christ but God is saying no I'm already doing it to you here below and he's using everything to that end your circumstances and even your spiritual weaknesses to make you more like Jesus Christ so we've seen then what God is doing he's using all your circumstances he's using your spiritual weaknesses he's working his purposes he's molding you and shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ in order to bring you into his presence why why is he doing all that? That is our final thought. God fulfilling his purpose for Christ. We read in the latter part of verse 29, which I argue is the highlight of this text, this passage. It says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is all about Jesus Christ. All of it. 
It is for His glory. Paul is highlighting this when it says that He, that He is really highlighting that He, not us, but Him. And what about Him? That He may be the firstborn, the oldest one, the oldest son. What does that mean? Do we have any oldest sons in here? Jesus Christ is going to be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, in this ancient society, back some 2,000 years ago, if you were the oldest son, that was a position of preeminence. It was a position of importance. When your parents came to die, we pass away, you would receive, as the oldest son, you would receive double the inheritance. But with great privilege also came great responsibility. The oldest son was also responsible for the family. Especially if father were to pass away, it was the duty of the oldest son to take care of his mother and of his brother and of his sisters. When you read, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son runs away to go out there and live a life of partying and riot. It was the responsibility of his older brother to go after him, to bring him back, to restore him in the presence of his father. And you all well know that the older brother in the parable failed miserably. But not Jesus Christ. When we rebelled against him in paradise and continue to rebel against him, he himself came down from heaven, took upon himself our nature, our flesh, our blood. He walked the face of this earth, suffering our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our pains, our suffering. And then he went to the cross for our sakes. To pay the price for our sins. So that he could bring us home and restore us in the presence of the Father to be reconciled with him. That is what he did for us. Therefore, Jesus is the true elder brother. That's why he receives all the glory and all the honor. That's why he is preeminent. It wasn't just because he was born like as, as, as a son. Um, he wasn't, we say that he was begotten from eternity past. But Jesus Christ, he also took upon himself that responsibility by which the Father could give him his inheritance. That's all of his believers, all, all, of, all of his people. And because Jesus did that for you as believer, you can now be adopted into the family of God. Think about that. You will be, you are already adopted into the family of God as a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. That's an incredible privilege. And then it says, firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So it will not just be a few, 
But Revelation shows us that it is a great multitude which no man could count. To what purpose? To all have fellowship together? To be rid of pain and suffering? That will all be part of it. But this is about Jesus being the preeminent among his people in heaven. How can that be? Because every single one of us will be a perfect reflection of his image. So that Jesus can look at you and see, as it were, a, a reflection of himself. But now think about this. We've gone through all these, these, all the things that God is doing to you in your life, in your spiritual circumstances, in your external circumstances, meaning that every single one of you is unique and has a unique life story to tell and a unique way in which God dealt with you, drawing you into his marvelous light, sanctifying you through this life. When you enter into heaven, there will be millions of saints Every single one of them having a unique, beautiful story to tell. Can you imagine what that will be like when you meet saints from, what, three, four thousand years ago with whom you have absolutely nothing in common in this life? And they will tell you how Jesus saved them. And you shall be able to share your story. How Jesus Christ will be glorified in all this. How we will give him the honor and glory. This is all about him. What we see in this text ultimately is something that one of my pastor mentors really pushed to me. He said, see this everywhere you go. God the Father, children. God the Father loves God the Son. And because God the Father loves the Son, He wants to glorify the Son. How does He do it? That's what we've been considering all the way through. He gave Him all the universe and all His people in it. And then He was sent in this world to rescue His people. This is all about Jesus Christ. God the Father wanting to glorify the Son. But what that means for you is that the purpose of your salvation and my salvation began even before the whole world was created. But it began not with you and I, but it began with Him. He saved you for Himself. And all throughout history and through your life and into glorification, the purposes of why God saved you ends again with him. Not with you, but with him. And for that very reason, your salvation is secure. Because had God looked at anything in us, all hope would be lost. But he looks at you as in Jesus Christ. And therefore we were created for his honor and for his glory. God's purpose is our salvation. And indeed we shall share in this glory. 
and in this purpose. But the purpose transcends us, and it ends with him. What does that mean to us, very practically? First of all, we consider that the good purpose of all things is ultimately about him and not us. Are you willing to accept that? Because it means that on the center stage of your life, in the spotlight, should not be you, but Jesus Christ. The problem is that by nature we are so wired to make it all about ourselves. We want to please ourselves, we want to comfort ourselves, we want to glorify ourselves. It's true, right? But to go in there, to go through life and constantly be putting Jesus at the center stage is often a battle. And even after having been saved, this continues to be a struggle. We have such subtle ways to make it still all about ourselves. Come hear my testimony of what God did do for me because I am so special. That last part we won't say. But that's so often deep down there, isn't it? Do you want to make your life all about Jesus Christ? Somebody once told me, true humility is not thinking less of self. It's thinking less. It's thinking about self less. That's hard. To think about ourselves less and to think about Jesus Christ. To make it about him. But if that, is what you, if that is your desire, even though you might struggle with this, if it is your desire to make your life all about Jesus Christ, then the next question is this. Do you also want to be conformed to his image? Do you want to be made like Christ? And really, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is this on the forefront of your mind? Because this is God's purpose for you. Is this what you obsess over? Lord, make me more like Jesus Christ. Is that your prayer all the day through? Or are you preoccupied with the concerns of this world? Lord, deliver me from this trial and help me with that. And I need this and this and this. And I get the whole laundry list of all things that God has to do to make your life better. If it is not your primary concern, I urge you to make it your primary concern in your prayer life and throughout the day. God, make me more like Jesus Christ. Because if that is your aim in life, then you have all reason to rejoice. Because everything that happens to you, everything that God gives you, and everything that God withholds you, is aimed for that very purpose. God uses everything to make you like the sun, so that one day you may be in heaven as a perfect reflection of his image. Everything. Remind yourself of this truth with every setback. Now, in general, we may be able to see how spiritual struggles make us more like Christ. Maybe not in a moment, but at least afterwards we'll be able to see how you were made humble and needy and how it brought you closer to the Lord. And the same with, with, with circumstantial struggles. 
Like, we have some people in our church, I don't know about here, but we've got some people in our church who have suffered so much, also physically and, and, and emotionally, that have been gone through so many things. And they will be able to say, maybe not in the midst of trial, but at least afterwards, by grace, how it brought them closer to God, how it has humbled them, how it essentially makes them more Christ-like. We see that in the positive things and in the negative things of life. We know marriage makes us more like Christ. Having children makes us more like Christ. And the big trials in this life makes us more like Christ. Where I personally struggle, and I don't know about you, is the little things. In the little things. When you get off this parking lot and you drive back home, and you get cut off in traffic. Or it's in the middle of July and your air conditioning, air conditioning stops working. Or you wake up with this tremendous headache. Your kids are fighting over the breakfast table because you didn't put the right cereal in front of them. What is it that you're facing right now? I was on this youth camp this couple days ago. I sat at night at the campfire, and now my legs are covered in mosquito bites. It stinks. <laughs> and in those moments, Paul asks us, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to those things? What shall we say to the high gas prices? Or to inflation? Whose fault is it? What are you telling your friends and your family? What are you plastering all over social media? When something like that happens, I urge you and myself, I've, I've preached this message so many times and every single time I get to eat my own words, but I urge you to get in the holy habit of recognizing God's sovereignty in everything, and then realizing why he does it. Why does he do it? When a bee stings you, when you get stuck in a traffic jam, or whatever little thing it is, before you complain, before you ask, why, Lord? Before you tell all your friends, pause and give him thanks. Even though you know the, the, the very detailed reason as to why God did it, you know this. He uses it to conform you into the image of his son and to prepare you for heaven. Really, everything. Unless you want to deny God's absolute sovereignty. It's amazing to think that God would have foreordained these little things from eternity past to happen to you on this very day to conform you into the image of His Son. Think about that. If you don't want that, Where you arrive here, 
is this. If you don't want to be conformed to his image, if you want God for just the external blessings in life, you promise him to be a good conservative Christian and he's going to give you the good things in life. If you want to just keep God at his arm's length, you're probably getting a little uncomfortable at this point because you know now what this text demands of us that Jesus Christ, when he comes into your life, he becomes Lord over every little detail of your life. Everything. Do you want that? Are you willing to surrender all of that to him? Even if you struggle, but do you really want that? Do you want to be made like Christ? Because if that is not the case, we all have to ask ourselves some very difficult self-examination questions. Whether or not we be in his kingdom and subject to him. Because those who are outside of Jesus' kingdom, all these glorious truths that we've considered, the opposite applies as well. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is not interceding with you and Jesus Christ is not interceding for you. And that means that all these weaknesses and all these infirmities will be held against you and that all things that happen in this life, the good and the bad, will serve against you. Will work together for your condemnation if you remain outside of him. And then know this, that Jesus Christ will still be glorified, whether it's in condemnation or in salvation. So if this is you and you're still outside of Jesus Christ, then bow the knee before him and make him your Lord. Because for that purpose, you were created. That's our duty in life, to glorify Jesus Christ in everything. Blessed are you when you have made Jesus your Lord. Because you can confidently say, indeed, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a good reason. And it is this, that he may be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, myself included. Amen. Lord God and Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much, Lord, for presenting us with this glorious, glorious truth. God, help us to subject to it, to surrender our whole lives to you, Father, if there be those who are outside of Jesus Christ, draw them in that they may desire these glorious truths for them as well, for them personally to be applied to their hearts that they too would give their lives to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, you, we owe you our lives, our everything. Take it, Lord. And... Help us to live solely for you. Please be with us, O Lord, in the remainder of this day.
Will you bring us safely home? Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this Sabbath day in your presence. Keep us from sin, O Lord. We pray all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.